This is Planet Money from NPR. Mustafa Noud was born in Mogadishu, Somalia in 1992. His father owned and ran a few small businesses. We had an ice cream shop and then we had a clothing store, but the ice cream would have been there. The big money maker back then? Because Somalia is a very hot country. But when Mustafa was 11, the Somali terrorist group Al-Shabaab asked his father to provide them with funding. His father refused multiple times, Mustafa says. And then one day around noon, members of Al-Shabaab came to Mustafa's house. And in front of Mustafa, his mother and his seven younger siblings, they murdered his father in their courtyard. By 4 p.m., the family was fleeing Somalia. So we didn't have any time to, uh, like, start thinking, okay, where should we go or where should we take? Uh, we didn't even take any of any of our belongings. The only item I ha- I've just managed to grab was uh, a bedsheet from my bed. That's pretty much it. That's all you left with? That's all I left with. Mustafa and his family spent roughly the next decade, until he was 22, in refugee camps in Kenya, until they were resettled in Lancaster City, Pennsylvania, in 2014. And out of these tragic circumstances, just five years later, Mustafa is a small business owner, just like his dad was. And refugees like him and other immigrants are a meaningful part of a complicated success story. The story of how Lancaster City and the surrounding Lancaster County have prospered economically. I'm Stacey Vanek-Smith. And I'm Cardiff Garcia. And normally, the two of us are the co-hosts of Planet Money's daily podcast called The Indicator from Planet Money. And you know, if you are feeling like you need more podcasts in your life, you should subscribe. We welcome new subscribers, yeah, always. We pretty welcoming, I, I think, think so. We try, try to be. be. Yeah. The Indicator tells a short story about economics every single day in less than 10 minutes. And today on Planet Money, two of those indicators back-to-back. First up is Mustafa Noor. He is a refugee living in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, and he teaches us a few things about the relationship between refugees and their local economy. And then the indicator rides along delivering Amazon Prime packages to find out what it actually takes for one of those packages to arrive at your door. This message comes from NPR sponsor Indeed. When it comes to hiring, you need help getting to your short list of qualified candidates fast. With Indeed.com, you can post a job in minutes, set up screener questions, then zero in on qualified candidates using an intuitive online dashboard. And when you need to hire fast, accelerate your results with sponsored jobs. New users can try for free at Indeed.com planet. Terms, conditions, and quality standards apply. Offer valid through March 31st, 2020. Planet Money has a newsletter straight to your inbox. It's just the right amount of economics weekly. Go to npr.org slash planetmoneynewsletter. About two years into their stay at a Kenyan refugee camp, after fleeing Somalia, Mustafa Noor and his family found that they had been selected to be resettled in the U.S. And initially, they had mixed feelings. So when the country selects you, you're notified two years in that, hey, you know, the United States has selected you. And that has, in the refugee camp, that always comes as a great news at the same time, a bad, bad news because, um, because the United States takes the longest to process anybody. They have a harder process, they have a harder scrutiny, harder background checks. And he's right. The vetting process for refugees coming to the U.S. is intense. There's multiple interviews and background checks and security checks by different branches of the U.S. government, fingerprints, tests for contagious diseases. It can take years. For Mustafa's family, it took a decade. But eventually, as with other refugees who make it through the whole process, the family was paired with a resettlement agency. 
Mustafa and his family were paired with Church World Service, which has a branch in Lancaster. It's a nonprofit that receives funding from the federal government and from private donors. And it sets up refugee families with a few months of housing, some counseling services, food and clothing. And then they try to uh, uh, find you a job right away because once you're land here, you have to start uh, paying back your bill for, to the government for bringing you. A lot of people don't know this, but yes, refugees pay back the U.S. government for the cost of flying here. For Mustafa's big family, those were not cheap flights. It's around eleven to twelve hundred per person. So a family of 10, 10 people, you get a bill of almost ten thousand right away. <laughs> Mustafa says he found Lancaster City and Lancaster County unexpectedly welcoming to his refugee family and to other refugee families, and that in fact is the city's reputation. In 2016, before the Trump administration started limiting how many refugees could come to the U.S., the number of refugees that were resettled in Lancaster City hit a peak of 407. As a share of the city's population, that's almost 23 times more refugees resettled than in the U.S. as a whole, which is why the city was labeled the refugee capital of America by the BBC. So why is Lancaster able to resettle so many refugees? One reason is resources. For example, Church World Service, the resettlement agency, is able to partner with local organizations to provide services beyond just the basics, beyond the initial housing and food and clothes. For example, there's a nonprofit that provides health care to refugees. There's English language tutors, the school district and universities to help with education, employment programs and companies that will actively try to hire refugees and train them. Sheila Masto Prieto runs the Lancaster office of Church World Service, and she says that all these resources make it possible for Lancaster to accept even the hardest cases, like when there's a huge refugee family of 10 or 15 people, or when a refugee has a medical issue and can't work, or if a refugee only speaks a really obscure foreign language. There are no cases in this area that we, that we would refuse, so we do have the option when a case is sent to us by our national office to say, they say, basically, they're saying, will you accept this case? So we, we always do. And it's not just tangible resources. There's something else that has given Lancaster the ability to absorb refugees. It's history. Starting in the early 18th century, members of the Mennonite and Amish churches were fleeing persecution in Europe and started moving to Lancaster. The county still has a huge Amish and Mennonite population. And the value of welcoming people in need of a new home has remained. Steve Nolt, a professor at Elizabethtown College, spoke with us at the Mennonite Historical Society, which features exhibits about the Amish and Mennonite history of Lancaster. Well, in the, in the late 1970s and early 1980s, for example, uh, Mennonites in this area were, um, were deeply involved in the resettlement of refugees from Southeast Asia, um, from, from Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos. Um, and that's, that was motivated both by um, you know, Christian humanitarian concerns and also concerns that uh, as Mennonites, as conscientious objectors, as pacifists. And in fact, Mustafa's own experience right after arriving in Lancaster reflects this. My first ever job was I worked with the Amish. I used to work for a company that built garages and sheds. So I used to install windows. He did well enough at this job installing windows for these sheds that he was hired by a company called E-Impact Marketing, which provides marketing for Amish companies in the area and which trained Mustafa in web design. Mustafa would end up becoming their head web developer. And then he started thinking more broadly. He started a company called Bridge, which is a website where people can sign up to have dinner in the home of a refugee family in the area. 
The refugee family will cook the meal and share their story. And the family will also set a fee for the dinner, which it gets to keep. Bridge charges a service fee, which is how it makes money. Mustafa's original pitch for Bridge won a business plan competition, which provided the funding to get it started. My pitch was that I was going instead to, of, instead of retraining or giving refugees a new skill, why not give them a platform where they can earn an income with what they already know and what they already have, which is their culture and their food. Adam Ozemek is a Lancaster-based economist, and he says that refugees and immigrants contribute to a local economy by helping its population grow, and thereby giving new businesses more people to sell to, customers, and also people to hire as employees. Adam says that Mustafa's story also demonstrates some more subtle ways that immigrants and refugees contribute. They move in to neighborhoods that, uh, you know, others might find less desirable and they start interesting businesses and they really contribute to the diversity of consumer experiences downtown. I mean, you can, in downtown Lancaster, you can eat um, at Vietnamese place, you can eat at uh, Nepalese place. There's just a huge amount of variety there. Mustafa says his company is making money. And he even has plans to expand into neighboring York County. And he adds that his story shows the symbiotic relationship between the Lancaster economy and its refugees. And it goes something like this. The success of the economy makes it possible for the city to offer resources to these refugees so that they can prosper. And their prospering feeds right back into the success of the Lancaster economy. So what happens is when a refugee person comes here, the community, this community has done a very good job of harnessing that refugee person as a whole, from employment to training to job opportunities to entrepreneurship training. So I, I went through those different circles of, of coming here, receiving welcome, finding a stable job, and then find, developing a skill, which is the development, uh, web development, and then using that skill to create a, a company and now. So it's a great circle and it's, and it's, a, it's something which is very, I don't want to say unique, but special about Lancaster. Coming up after the break, inside Amazon Flex and all the hidden work that goes into getting you your packages in two days or less. This message comes from NPR sponsor Capital One. With Capital One, a new savings account earns five times the national average. That's five times more savings toward that overdue home edition, or maybe even an addition on that edition. Capital One is helping you earn more towards your savings goals. This is banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Capital One N.A. Member FDIC. Hey, it's Greg Rosalski here. I write the Planet Money newsletter. We keep you up to date with stories behind Fed decisions, the housing market, and Big Scooter. Subscribe at npr.org slash planetmoneynewsletter. Just the right amount of economics sent weekly. Stacey, for this one, I'm out. I'm going to let you take <laughs> it with uh, reporter Adrian Ma from WBUR in Boston. Yes, Adrian, you brought us the story about Amazon. Right. And of course, we could not resist. Yes. So if you're among the millions of Americans who buy stuff on Amazon, you probably know the feeling, right? You get home, you see that brown box by your door, and you think, sweet, it's that thing I ordered. Oh, so good. It's like mini Christmas without the terrible airports. Yes, exactly. And... You know, you see that box, you have this warm, fuzzy feeling inside. But do you ever stop to think about the person who brought you that box? Now, if your first guess was maybe the postal worker or the UPS driver, 
you'd be about 50% right. According to a recent estimate by Morgan Stanley, almost half of Amazon shipments are actually delivered by Amazon itself. And often the final drop is made by one of thousands of gig workers hired through this app called Amazon Flex. How much of your week do you spend doing Flex? Oh my goodness. Uh, <laughs> pretty much every waking hour that I'm not eating or sleeping. <laughs> this is Lynn. We're only using her first name here because she's worried speaking to a reporter could affect her ability to get work from Amazon. Lynn used to be an administrative assistant, but a couple of years ago, she quit and dove headfirst into the gig economy. Once I realized that there were other jobs out there that were a lot more convenient, a lot more flexible, uh, I never really looked back once I started. Soon, Amazon Flex went from being Lynn's side hustle to her main source of income. It became her front hustle. Her front hustle. So Lynn is among the roughly 1% of U.S. workers who make a living through online gig work. And to better understand what this particular gig involves, we took a ride. Can you, like, walk me through how, how does this thing work? Sure. So this is the main page right here. It's the home page. Uh, it's basically... At her home in central Massachusetts, Lynn app. pulls up the Amazon Flex app on her phone. On screen is a list of what they call blocks, basically shifts of two to four hours where she can sign up to deliver stuff. And next to each shift is a dollar amount for how much she can earn. Which sounds pretty simple, but here's the tricky part. The dollar amounts for the blocks will change. Usually the closer it gets to the starting time, the rates will start to raise. And it's kind of like a game to see how high you can get it before that block disappears on you. The wonky term for this is dynamic pricing, and it means she's got to be strategic. Grab a block too soon, and she could be leaving money on the table. Wait too long, and someone else might grab it. You keep on having to do this, swipe down on the app, it refreshes, and you basically have to do that constantly throughout the day to see what's available for work. Lynn says the feeling of catching a block is addictive. And on the good days, it pays a lot more than she used to make as an administrative assistant. And the day that you were there, Adrian, Lynn booked a three and a half hour shift for 95 bucks. And then you guys went for a ride. We did. So on that afternoon, we hop in her sedan and drive to a nearby Amazon warehouse. And when we got there, she drove past a bunch of big trucks and entered this building through a big door. Half the space was taken up by basically this like big metal tower and this network of chutes and conveyor belts. And then next to that was a long row of parking spaces. And so Lynn drove over to one of these spots where a shelf full of boxes and envelopes was already waiting for her. And then to find out where it all went, she took out her phone. Kind of scans it, downloads the packages onto my phone, and looks like I'm going to Worcester. Not my favorite place to go to. No shade on Worcester. She said it was actually the roads there are kind of rough. Sure, it's the roads. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, as she was loading up the car, I noticed that some of these packages are pretty big. Like there was a fancy pressure cooker, a child's car seat, a fish aquarium. I break a lot of nails doing this job. But she managed to get the car packed up. And once she did, the rest of her afternoon basically went like this. She drives to a house grabs a package and carefully traverses the snow-covered walkway. And ignoring the scary-sounding dog, she drops off the package and scans the label to let Amazon know it's done. Over the next few hours, Lynn repeats this process 18 times. That's a lot of times and a lot of dogs. <laughs> okay, there weren't 18 dogs. 
And, you know, Lynn told me, like, 18 stops is actually a pretty easy shift. Often she'll make 30 or 40 stops in one go. I mean, this sounds exactly like a UPS job or a mail carrier. Yeah. And just like a mail carrier, Lynn has to deal with bad roads, hungry dogs, lousy weather. Oh, and slip and falls. Like, she told me about this one time when she slipped on a customer's wet stone walkway. And my feet went straight out from under me, and I landed right on my back. And it went so hard that my teeth, like, clanked together. (laughs) And I think the guy inside must have heard me because he peered out the door and said, Are you okay? And I said, I think so. And he said, All right. And then shut the door and didn't even help me up. So I was like, Okay. I swear that people in Massachusetts are nice. I mean, I suppose he asked if she was okay. That's something. Yes. But, you know, it's a pretty scary thing to happen. And stories like this are why some experts are critical of Amazon Flex. Like David Weil. He's a professor studying labor policy at Brandeis University. The mail deliverer who came to your house to deliver a package or the UPS driver was an employee of those companies and they would be protected by a whole set of workplace laws. If they get injured on the job, they might get workers' comp or their union might help. If they face harassment or discrimination, civil rights laws might cover them. But these don't apply to flex drivers because they're not technically employees. And Adrian, you reached out to Amazon for this story and they were pretty clear with you. They consider flex drivers to be independent contractors. But David Weil, he's pretty skeptical of this label. A real independent contractor, the key word there is independent. And through the Flex app, Amazon exerts a lot of control over when drivers work and how much it pays. It also tracks their performance and punishes those that fail to meet a certain standard. When you have that much control over what a worker does and the consequences of failing to do that, uh, we call that employment. At least Weil does. He argues there ought to be laws that give flex drivers and other gig workers the kinds of protections employees get. Protections that could help folks like Lynn. Right now, if she breaks her arm making a delivery, she has to figure out how to pay for it. And while she's laid up, of course, she's not making money. And Adrian, you talked to Lynn. Like, how did she feel about this? She says it might be nice to have some more benefits, but not if it means losing the flexibility she expects from gig work. Oh, interesting. Yeah. But there's an irony here. Lynn has flexibility, but also she says she works a lot harder than she used to. While we were on the road together, she told me she spends about 35 hours a week driving. And then there's all the time she spends on her phone swiping and just trying to get a shift. My day is taken up between looking for work, doing work, and then squeezing in a bite to eat here and there, which can be difficult. Does that affect your social life? What social life? (laughs) And that schedule doesn't leave a lot of time for things like shopping either, which she says is actually fine, because if there's ever anything she needs to buy, she can usually find it on Amazon. Oh, no! (laughs) It all comes back There is no escape. Amazon wins in the end. Yeah. That was reporter Adrian Ma from WBUR in Boston. And this has been Two Indicators. Cardiff, get back in here for the credits. I never actually left. I've been here the whole time. You've been here the whole time. If you like these stories, The Indicator from Planet Money publishes one every single day. So subscribe to us. All the days. Yeah. The Indicator is produced by Lena Sunsgiri and Darius Raffion. Our editor is Patty Hirsch. And our fact checker and intern is Brittany Cronin. Shout out to Alexi Horowitz-Ghazi and Nick Fountain for adapting today's episode for Planet Money. 
And if you haven't already, subscribe to the Planet Money newsletter. It is a short, scintillating read about one interesting topic each week. You can find it at npr.org slash planetmoneynewsletter. And one last pitch. Come be our intern. Both Planet Money and the Indicator podcasts are hiring interns. Details are at our website. And honestly, the easiest way to find that is just by Googling it. Always like, the easiest yeah, like way. like everything else. I'm Stacey Vanek-Smith. And I'm Cardiff Garcia. This is NPR. Thanks for listening.